Are you here? Ladies, are you here? Gentlemen, are you here? What about the boys and girls? Hmm? Are you here? Moms and dads, are you here? Well, check, 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 and check. You're all here, and you're all listening to The Paul Leslie Hour. Welcome to our episode. This program has been airing for, more oh, 19 years and counting. We'd like to say hello to a past guest. He is John by day and Jack by night. John Phillips, publicly and musically known as Jack Phillips, has a real milestone birthday today. He's turning 60. Happy birthday, Jack. Wish you the happiest birthday ever. Wish we could be up there in the Empire State celebrating with you. Hey, have a grand time, one and all. Now, today's interview on the episode is with documentary filmmakers David Healy and Joan Kramer. Now, this was originally broadcast on radio back in 2015. But now we're making it available on all the listening platforms out there. Filmmakers Joan Kramer and David Healy have made many movies about iconic people, ranging from Fred Astaire, Judy Garland, Paul Newman and Joan Woodward, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Errol Flynn. Hey, you get the picture. Mr. Healy and Ms. Kramer joined Paul to talk about their book, in the company of legends. And oh, do they have some stories to tell. Well, you know, we've got stories too. We've recorded so many stories and they're just sitting on CD but not available for folks to listen to. Hey, we want to get all this content out there. Maybe, hey, maybe you can help. Of course, just by listening, you're helping the show. But we also need supporters. If you could be one of them, just visit www.thepaulleslie.com slash support, and we be thanking you. Now it's time to start the show. David Healy, John Kramer, the authors of In the Company of Legends, right here, right now. Our special guests are Don Healy and Joan Kramer, who have produced documentaries with many of Hollywood's biggest legends. They join us to discuss their book, In the Company of Legends. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Paul. Thank you for having us, yes. First of all, how did you all begin to create these documentaries together? Well, it all started when we were, Joan and I were thrown together on a, a program in uh, WNET, that's public television in New York. It was a local series about the arts in New York City. We were put together, I was a producer director, Joan came on board of the station's associate producer. As I say, we were assigned to produce a show together. It was about a stage designer called Ruben Terrarotunian. The production did not go smoothly. <laughs> it could well have been our last working together, but we got through it, and after that we did some more shows. And then we did what turned out to be a pivotal show, which was about Rudolf Nureyev, the ballet dancer. Joan, pick up, would you? Yes, and I knew Nureyev because I had been a dancer, and when I worked on the Dick Cavett show prior to joining public television, I had booked Nureyev on the Cavett show. And Nureyev said to me, 
I think Fred Astaire is the greatest American dancer. Is there any way you could ever introduce us? I've never met him. And I, by that time, was a friend of Joanne Woodward's, and Joanne, who is an avowed dance aficionado, dance nut, as she would say, I had an idea, and I told it to David, that Nureyev would like to meet Astaire, and we came up with the concept of doing a sort of a television special in which Joanne, the dance aficionado, would talk, do a talk show, talking to Nureyev and Astaire at the same time. Well, Astaire said no, and Nureyev said yes, and it evolved into the profiles that the first national shows David and I did together about Fred Astaire, which Nureyev was on. We went to Paris to interview him, and Joanne Woodward wound up narrating the shows, but I never did get them in the same room at the same time. But that was our first national show about a movie star, and it was it was a much bigger hit than we ever expected it to be, and it, it led to all the others. The book goes into Fred Astaire a little bit. What was his reaction to the work that you all did? Well, well, first of all, we should explain that he didn't want us to do the shows. <laughs> ah. He he made it very clear he didn't want a television special done about him. And we believe it was because at the time there were quite a number of those, what were like tribute shows where somebody would sit on a stage or at a table and everybody would get on in front of a microphone and lord them and say how wonderful they were. And that was not the sort of thing that Fred was comfortable with. We finally persuaded him we were not doing that, that we wanted to do a documentary program profile and we kept writing him letters and his agent would call and say leave him alone <laughs> and eventually <No> <laughs> we yeah eventually we got the call from the agent who said because of your tenacity Mr. Astaire has agreed to let you go ahead and make the show and, and I remember saying to Joan well that's all very nice I mean thank you know he's very good of him to do that but we didn't need his permission he's a public figure and it's a big deal well, it was a big deal as it happened because something we didn't know was that Astaire's lawyers in the 1930s when he worked for RKO had written into his contracts that he had control over the use of clips of his films. So he could have stopped us doing the shows. Thank goodness we didn't know because if we'd known, we would have probably given up. And in our ignorance, we pressed on and finally got his permission. So his permission turned out to be a big deal. Paul, when you think about it, that lawyer in the 1930s I don't know if he had a crystal ball or what, but in the 1930s, nobody was using excerpts for anything other than coming attractions. Right. So why he had, why he put that clause in the stairs contract is incredible. Anyway, it turned out that when we got this permission to do the shows from the agent, there was actually a sting in the tail. Because the agent said to us, oh, and by the way, Mr. Stair thinks it would be a good idea for you to show him a rough cut before you put your show to bed. Interesting. Well, also terrifying, <laughs> because Astaire was known to be a perfectionist and could be very, very rough on people that didn't meet his standards. We approached that screening with, with grave trepidation, I have to tell you, but we got through it. And what happened was that we realized that, remember, this was in, in around about 1980. There was pretty much no home video in existence at the time. And the only way you could see Astaire's films were either in revival houses, of which there were very few, or on late-night television on rather muddy old prints, scratched 60-millimeter prints. And so he hadn't actually seen himself dancing in his movies for many, many years. And I think he enjoyed seeing what we put together. The reaction, the first dance number in our in our profile was the Top Hat White Tine Tales number from, the very famous number from Top Hat. 
And we noticed when he, after he was going for about 30 seconds, he was humming and tapping his feet. And we thought, oh my goodness, he's actually enjoying this. Thank goodness. <laughs> this year is very significant in the world of Frank Sinatra because this is the centenary year. This December, 100 years, Frank Sinatra, his birth being in 1915. Tell us about Frank Sinatra and his appearance in the book. Well, he has two appearances in the book, but we'll tell you uh, the first one. Catherine Hepburn asked us to do a program about Spencer Tracy, which was a remarkable phone call that I got, because as you probably know, Catherine Hepburn never spoke about Spencer Tracy other than to talk about her admiration for him as an actor. So if anybody ever tried to veer into their personal relationship, the interview would come to a very fast end. But she called us and said, now I have friends at public television. Why don't we do a show together about Spence? Come to tea. So when we went to tea, we talked about people who could be on the show. And she was going to host it. And among the people's names that came up was Frank Sinatra. And she said, oh, Frank was a great friend of Spence's. You've got to get Frank. Well, getting Frank was like trying to reach for, was trying to breach through Fort Knox. I had a home number. It didn't work. I <laughs> I then found out that he had a friend named Jilly Rizzo, and I was advised to call Jilly at on the <laughs> in a jewelry store on Lexington Avenue in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, and I <laughs> I reached Jilly, who said to me, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me a letter. I'll give it to Frank. And I, I sent a letter to a jewelry store to Jilly. And a couple days later, he said, yeah, Frank got the letter. If he's interested, you'll hear from somebody. And I, it turned out to be a dead end. I never could reach Jilly again, and I never heard from anybody. So we happened to be going to lunch at Hepburn's house. And she said, how are you doing with, with getting people? And we, we told her of our Frank Sinatra debacle, that nothing was happening. She said, I'll find Frank. Don't worry. Well, we were in Los Angeles, and my phone rang in the hotel, and she said, you're going to Frank's house in Palm, just outside Palm Springs on Thursday. This was a Monday. You're going on, th- you're going on Thursday. And by the way, it's his birthday. It was his 70th birthday. And you're supposed to call a woman. Here's the number in, in his kitchen named Dorothy. So I called this woman, Dorothy, who said to me, yes, Mr. Sinatra will do it. Be here at one o'clock for setup. He'll do it at two. And when we arrived, the man who was so hard to find, by the way, lived on Frank Sinatra Drive, I might add. (laughs) And when we arrived, a very lovely man greeted us at the gate. And we noticed very quickly that the man was in a full uniform, including a gun in a holster. But we interviewed Sinatra. He was terrific. Told us wonderful stories. He was just professional and spot on time, which David will always tell people that's obviously from the old studio system because he's a product of the old studio system and they had to be on time. These old movie stars were extremely disciplined, we found. And as, as Joan said, that was, that, was because of, that, that was because of the studio system. Uh, they had early morning calls and they knew when they had to be on the set and if they were not on the set and ready, everybody was kept waiting. The studios are not going to stand for that. So it was, it was a wonderful byproduct of that system. I think the only person that ever kept us waiting was Elizabeth Taylor, but she was a separate case. So Catherine Hepburn would be there ahead of time and wonder why we were not ready. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular place or a part in this book, in the Company of Legends, that either collectively or separately, a favorite part of the book? Whoa, you know, you're asking us to choose our favorite child. (laughs) 
or you're asking Fred Astaire to say who is his favorite dance partner. All our programs, well, to me, I think Joan agrees. They're, they're all special in their own way. They all had something going for them that are very memorable. So what is the... Ah, Joan, can you have a go at this? I don't know, but I think I think if you put fire under David's fingernails, he would probably tell you that out of all the films throughout the careers of these people, in which they worked with multiple directors and multiple producers and multiple writers, we were among the lucky ones to do programs that were personal to them, their life stories, and particularly Catherine Hepburn. I mean, the first day that David directed Catherine Hepburn was memorable, and I mean memorable. <laughs> was there someone who, when you think back, was the greatest challenge? The greatest challenge? Well, to me personally, I, I think Joan just gave you it. I, it, was, it, was, it was knowing that I was going to be directing Catherine Hepburn for the first time. And you can imagine what it's like the night before, wondering if you're going to get any sleep. And it wasn't exactly a, a trial by fire, but it was, was a little bit rocky to start with. And, and, and one of the reasons that I... I didn't realize at the time, it was only later that it dawned on me, that I wasn't the only one that was nervous. She was nervous because she was doing something she'd never done before. We were asking her to host a show. That meant looking into a camera lens, which is something she'd been told never to do, and also reading a script, reading a teleprompter. She was facing a challenge for her. And that first morning, she was... She was he was a little bit prickly, shall we say, <laughs> and I was very nervous. But once we got through the first take, we were home and dry. And from that point on, she was such a dream to work with. She always has had ideas, and they were usually damn good ideas. I learned, I learned early on to give her her head, and if she was going to suggest something, it was probably a good idea to at least try it, and she was usually right. The beginning of a long relationship. I was hoping you could tell us about your experiences with Johnny Carson. Oh, well. Jimmy Stewart was the subject of the show that we did right after Spencer Tracy. And Jimmy agreed to do the show, and then he tried to pull out. I mean, it was a rocky start, as all of them had, were in one way or another. And we were just so busy trying to keep that show afloat that it never occurred to us who should host it until we were on in a car on the way to a meeting at MGM because MGM was co-producing the show with public television in exchange. They would get distribution rights after the PBS window of rights in exchange for giving us free clips. So we're in a car 20 minutes away from a meeting at MGM when David said to me, I think we better come up with a name or two for ho of a host. And David suddenly came up. He said, what about Johnny Carson? Jimmy's always terrific on the show when he appears on The Tonight Show. I bet that kind of chemistry that they have on Johnny's show would work for us, too. So we went to the meeting and threw out the name Johnny Carson, and everybody said, wonderful. And then, of course, we had to get Johnny Carson, who rarely did anything outside of The Tonight Show except host the Oscars once in a blue moon. So then we had to figure out how to get Johnny Carson. <laughs> you know, you say, you, you tell people what you're going to do, and then you pro then sometimes you really have to do it. <laughs> so we wrote a letter to a talent executive at NBC who passed along the letter to Johnny, and within two days, Johnny said yes. And then he tried to pull out. He wanted to replace himself with Cary Grant. Well, if Johnny Carson never did television, I mean, seldom did television outside The Tonight Show, Cary Grant never, and I mean never, went on television. So we were so depressed because we thought Johnny, one, was not going to get Cary Grant, and two, that Johnny was determined to replace himself and might 
run around Hollywood trying to get one person after another who might say yes, and it could take months. Hmm. Well, it turned out that when Cary Grant was unavailable, he was on, on a tour that he, he did with his one-man show of talking about his career to college students. Johnny called me at the hotel the next day and said to me, well, Carrie's out of town with that one-man show he does, and with Johnny's perfect timing, there was a pause. And he said, so, I guess you're stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Johnny, you don't have any idea how happy I am to be so stuck. Well, it's interesting about Johnny, because whenever we work with anybody, obviously we do a huge amount of research ahead of time. And we were a little bit nervous about working with him. He had a reputation of being rather distant, aloof, people would say cool. And even in his early, his early days, he was more than cool. He was difficult, although he, had, he admits that it was because he used to drink too much in those days, and he'd stop drinking by the time we worked with him. But I can tell you he was not cold, he was not aloof, he was not difficult. He was... His relationship with Jimmy, which you saw on The Tonight Show, was very real. That was not an act that you saw on The Tonight Show. They, they genuinely liked each other. And when we had them together on the Universal Backlot, taping for, their, for that, that program we did, you could see it. They were so supportive of each other the whole day through. We just had a very good experience with Johnny. Uh, he, was, he was very good at taking direction. And remember, he really was doing something. It wasn't, was not only that he wasn't in his own familiar territory on the stage of The Tonight Show, he wasn't doing a live program. He was doing something that was all stops and starts, resets, waiting for the cameras, for the lights, something that Jimmy was used to, of course, in the film world, but something that Johnny was not used to. That morning, that first morning, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, I hope Johnny can cope with all this hanging around and waiting while we reset between the shots. And that's where Jimmy was supportive of Johnny. And, and eventually, of course, it didn't take very long for Johnny to take to it. And, and he, he, was, he was great. I feel like I'm gushing a bit about him. But he, he was truly a terrific person to work with. He really was. And he was not. We never saw, if it's true that Johnny was cold and or aloof, it's not the Johnny we ever saw, ever. And we stayed in touch with him. We used to talk on the phone all the time. I'm not all the time, but frequently. And he was... He was terrific. He was always easy to chat with and wonderful stories and, of course, funny. And we had a wonderful time with him. I, I, really, I really admired him and cared about him. It came as an enormous shock when we heard that he had passed away. I also wanted to hear about Audrey Hepburn and some of the advice that you were given. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was for the third show we did about Fred Astaire. When we did the first two, they were so they were very successful. But the New York Times television critic John J. O'Connor, while praising the shows, said it's a shame the producers couldn't spend any time on Fred Astaire's other great talent, his singing. Well, the first two shows were never meant to be about his singing; they were about his dancing. So ten years later, we never forgot the comment, and we produced something called the Fred Astaire Songbook. Fred was no longer alive at the time, but his widow, Robin Astaire, originally wanted to host that show and then got nervous and pulled out. So we had to find another host. And through a colleague at our office at Channel 13, the colleague knew one of Audrey's closest friends in Switzerland. And through that friend, we got to Audrey. David, why don't you tell us what you felt about Audrey as well? Well, I, I was thrilled that she was that she agreed to do it, of course. But I said to Joan, "Look, I'm I'm a little bit nervous about this because I've I've seen her hosting shows, 
and she looks beautiful, she looks elegant, but she looks elegant and a little bit removed, a little bit distant. I said, that's not what we want for this show. We want somebody who is guiding the audience through a stairs singing career, but in a warm, friendly way. And how do we, how would, how, how are we going to get her to do that? Because that, that's not how she often comes across on television. Well, Joan reached Leonard Gersh. We were advised, well, who told you to talk to Leonard, Joan? I can't remember. Well, I think we were after Leonard Gersh to see if he would appear uh, in the program, which he oh, didn't that's... want to, because oh, Leonard Gersh wrote the, the book, and the, the actual screenplay for the movie Funny Face, which that's Audrey right. appeared in with Fred Astaire. Leonard and Gersh, I... had, he had some wonderful advice. He said, you don't need to try to make Audrey elegant. People like to dress her up, put one fine gowns on her, put jewelry on her, and put her in a formal situation. She's so elegant by herself, you don't need that. He said, the, the Audrey I know is somebody that curls up on a couch and chats with you. He said, have a dress, put on a, 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 a sweater of her choice, tell her to wear slacks, and then sit her on a sofa and just ask her to get comfortable and curl up on the sofa. And that's exactly what we did, and we got the Audrey Hepburn that we were both looking for. She is so warm and friendly. You feel you're sitting in the living room with her while she's chatting about a stare. It was a wonderful piece of advice we got. And for me, I think for David, too, you know, Audrey's one of those people that I think both men and women feel the same. I mean, women want to be her, and men want to meet her and be with her. I mean, she's universally admired for a lot of reasons, including the fact that she gave up a lucrative career as an actress to go hold dying babies to bring attention to their plight for UNICEF. She was in Somalia and all those Bangladesh holding starving children. For anyone who reads this book, In the Company of Legends, what is it that you want the reader to get out of that experience? Oh, well, I think I know what I want. I want people to come away with the realization that while we were working, <laughs> excuse the pun, in the company of legends, we were also working with human beings who were funny, who were interesting and interested in the world around them, who weren't just putting on makeup and going in front of a camera. We were able to know those people and get to work with them and in most cases remain friends with them. And I think that if the audience comes away thinking these were interesting, down-to-earth people, even though they were legends on the silver screen, I'll be very happy if that's the reaction. And that seems to be the reaction by people. What do you think, Paul? I think it's wonderful to keep the memory of some of these, like you're just talking about Audrey Hepburn, and a lot of these people, their legacy continues on, and people, they still want to hear the stories about these people. That's true. One of the things we were trying to do in the, the way we wrote the book also is to is to give the reader the feeling that they are with us when we when we when we're going through these experiences, when we're meeting these people, when we're talking with them. We'd like to feel that the reader is sitting in the room with us and experiencing what we're experiencing. My last question is very open ended. We've been speaking with Joan Kramer and David Healy. They've had so many of these documentaries, too many to list, and then their book, In the Company of Legends. What would you like to say to anyone listening in? <laughs> Don't forget <laughs> these people. Don't forget them. With other people, let's not say that they are the only ones. With other people, they are what made movies the worldwide cultural force, the entertainment force that they are today. I think throughout the world, people would, would leave their homes and go to theaters to see these people. 
we can still see them. This is what's so fortunate. Those movies are still available for us to see, and you can see why they were giants of the silver screen. We can't forget them. They have had a tremendous impact on our culture. And an incredible body of work. I mean, in the filmmaking, the films that they made were just, I mean, I I hate to use the word classics, but they were. I mean, you (laughs) you don't come across them too often anymore. I mean, they were just, you know, there's an old book that that I, I like to quote. It's a book called They Had Faces Then, and it, it's true. I mean, you don't forget the face of Catherine Hepburn. You don't forget the face of Humphrey Bogart. How, how can you not watch The African Queen and be, be absolutely captivated from beginning to end because of those two great performances who hold the film, performers who hold the film together? And any film with Fred Astaire, you're still seeing one of the greatest dancers of all time. Miss Joan Kramer? Mr. David Healy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing. Thank, Thank you, you for having for us on your show, Paul. Thank you for your interest. It was an honor. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.